Hello and welcome along to ED's Sustainable Business Covered podcast. Coming up on today's episode, we are live from the Sustainability Leaders Forum in London with a relay of exclusive interviews to bring you from the heart of the action. A very warm welcome to this very special episode of ED's long-running Sustainable Business Covered podcast, an episode brought to you live from day one of ED's Sustainability Leaders Forum at the Business Design Centre in Angel, London. If you are listening back at a later date, um, by today, day one, I mean Tuesday the 8th of March. I'm ED's senior reporter Sarah George and I'm joined on site here by more than 60 speakers and more than 360 other guests, but most importantly by ED's content director Luke Nichols. Hello. And our content editor Matt Mace. Hello. Um, And we are coming to you actually nearly at the end of the day's proceedings, so after a long day of keynotes, panels, workshops and frantically running around trying to locate people and somehow stay hydrated at the same time, um, we have sat down after one of the last sessions today, a panel debate on offsetting that is Chatham House, and Luke I think you've just sat in on that, so how how did you find that? I found it very interesting, It uh, it was... I, you know, I thought it would be a bit more feisty than it was, but in, a, in quite a good way. It wasn't that the panel kind of viciously agreed, as Solitaire Townsend said, but it was um, four of the five panellists were kind of, I guess, working for organisations that are involved in some way in, in offsetting. Uh, we also had a representative from Polestar, the electric vehicle company, um, who were perhaps, I would say, more on the against side of the argument. Mm-hmm. Um, so a great discussion ensued and we used uh, the Slido app for audience questions, people thumbs up in several questions that were quite, I guess, controversial. It was all held under Chatham House rules though, so I feel a bit bound and mm. I can't really go into too much depth so about it. Can't give away too much. And Matt, I know that you've been sitting out of that to be frantically typing here with me two frantic typers um so what was your highlight from the day was there another session that really stood out to you i did like the um i mean it's it's probably a good thing that the opening keynotes i thought just worked really well and um i'm a journalist so i like how language is used and i I did like you know we opened up with jeremy gilly the founder of peace one day who was just so energized exactly what you need at the start of the day Mm -hmm, and the mm -hmm. message i took from him was how the role for our audience is to inform, inspire, and engage. That's the kind of the soft skills they need to do to really kind of deliver action, not just on the climate crisis, but on the current kind of social inequalities that we're seeing as well. And then complementing that really well was Sir David King's speech, where he used the three R's, which was in this case reduce, remove, repair. And that's almost the technical mission statement for businesses. What they have to do is to you know reduce emissions, remove emissions through carbon sinks and then actually repair the planet through natural restorations and I just really like that kind of soft hard skill divide that really mm-hmm. set the tone for the day you know that just from there the the whole forum just felt laser focused that this is the end goal and the discussions that have come off since then have been much more about the paths to get there. Mm. 
Fantastic. And Matt, I'm glad actually that you picked something from this morning because we're now going to go back to our past selves, um, specifically to past me, um, for a relay across the day's um, proceedings. Um, I'm talking about a relay. If you tuned into our COP26 covered series live from Glasgow last November, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Only this time, instead of going across the whole of Glasgow, we're just going across the Business Design Centre. Um, so I'm going to pass this baton to myself in the past. Um, she is sat in the auditorium having a discussion with Bellu Waters Chief Executive Natalie Campbell. Yes, thank you to, I guess, myself for handing over the podcast um, baton. We are now in the first morning break on day one at the forum, and I'm delighted to be sat with Natalie Campbell, CEO of Belly Water, who's just taken part in a really great panel discussion on stage with representatives from UN Global Compact, um, from Ashton, and from Walgreens Boots. So thank you for taking the time, Natalie. How did you find that panel? Uh, Thought-provoking. Every conversation uh, that we have about climate action and a just transition sparks thoughts. So it was great to to hear what other organisations are doing um, and where they're focusing their time and effort. Yeah, and that discussion went really deep at the beginning. I think we recapped on the year, but then at the end of it, we were getting into colonialism and capitalism and the links to the climate crisis. Um, But for those of us who weren't in the room that are maybe just listening, I think it would be good to double back. Um, I remember having you on for an interview, but it was more than a year ago. Um, So it'd be great to catch up about what sustainability has looked like at Bellew during 2021. Um, So you guys are obviously a social enterprise and you're dealing with water. Um, So how does a company like that respond to the pandemic? Yeah, well, for us, um, we had what we called the gift of time to really look at how we made sure that Baloo would be fit for the next 10 years, how we could ensure our own sustainability credentials in an ever-changing world. So a couple of things that we did, um, we changed our company articles to align to the SDGs. So our primary object as a business is to deliver SDG 6, which is water access, 12, which is about sustainable production and consumption, and 13, which is about climate action. That fundamentally means that our purpose and reason for being isn't about shareholder value, but actually delivering for people and planet. We then created a new purpose, so our purpose is to change the way the world sees water, and that's our marriage between our environmental work and our commitment to society through the partnership that we have with WaterAid, where we give them 100% of our, our net profit. And so far, um, that total is 5.2 million, and we've transformed over 300,000 lives. And so for me, coming in as a new CEO, that's, that's a brilliant grounding to have. And what we're thinking about now is how can we drive innovation to encourage the drinks industry to think differently about their packaging, to think differently about their supply chain, so that we are using 100% renewable energy across the production life cycle, to think about the materials we're using to think about whether or not we even need to import or export um, any product. As most people will know, Baloo doesn't export. So everything we do, it's about being made in the UK and and sold within the UK. And it's our filtration business that we're starting to take um, internationally. And then on that point, we launched filtration uh, in Hong Kong and we scaled it in the UK, which is really our drive to move people away from the need for any single use material. And that's about um, ultimately having refillable bottles on the table within hospitality um, to support a move to a more circular economy. 
Great, so a busy year for you guys. The Articles of Association thing in what you were talking about really caught my eye. Um, you said about how every company legally has a purpose but it's normally making a profit for shareholders and you, you can say, change that to stakeholders. But how much will that really do when a new CEO comes in or when we're on the road to net zero and it's 2040 and there's another economic challenge and your backs are up against the wall? So that really... And it, it's, it's fundamentally true. Whatever is legally on paper uh, becomes a company's default exactly during that time of challenge during a, a leadership transition or just during a point of, of inflection for the business so for us grounding in our environmental purpose and our social purpose means that there is no option for the default to be anything other than good and it's our way of saying to businesses it's possible you, you, know, you can say all of the lovely PR strap lines around purpose that you want but the real proof in the pudding, the real proof of how far you're willing to go, is what you um, are legally obliged to do as a company and what you are legally um, upheld for uh, as an operating company. And I'd love to dive a bit more into that purpose-led uplift and what that really means in 2022 in a bit. But I did want to look at a bit about what Bell you will be up to in 2022. I know that some of it is under wraps. I understand there's a report coming in a few weeks, but can you give us a little taste of what's to come? So a little taste, and I, I said it here, we're no longer going to offset, and it goes back to the conversation we were having um, when you know, Harriet Lamb mentioned it, offsetting, the offsetting ecosystem is not fit for purpose. And the more work we, more work we do, the more research we do, shows that a lot of the practices are, are are unethical land is being cleared communities are being indigenous people are being removed from their land to set up uh, ultimately commercial vehicles which are being sold as offsets so we're no longer going to offset in within the current frameworks that means we can't be carbon neutral that's a big thing for, for blue because we've been carbon neutral for 10 years and carbon neutrality holds a space in in the public's minds but we're going to move to doing things right doing things better so we're going to invest in in nature-based solutions here in the uk we're going to focus on nature corridors around our supply chain and really ensure that the work that we're doing does deliver um not just from a from a carbon perspective in terms of um, biodiversity but also creates green jobs for um, local communities in the areas that we serve Great, well we'll have to keep an eye on that report when it comes out and I'm sure that's something a lot of other companies are keeping an eye on at the moment. I've definitely seen more press releases. Um, I did want to come back to purpose and maybe take a little look outside of value for a moment um, because obviously that's just one thing that you've done in more than 10 years in purpose-led business and social entrepreneurship. I understand you've also done things like co-founding a very good company. Um, so I wanted to take a, bit, a look back with, with you and ask about what trends you've been seeing in terms of becoming purpose-led so we saw a big uptick in oh what's the purpose-led business why should we do that early pandemic it was bottom of our survey today though um, so I wanted to get your views on whether you've seen an uptick of interest in becoming purpose-led and what the drivers of that um, I think bigger businesses are starting to think about having a purpose over having a vision what I would say, and the survey results are, are indicative of this, is that I, I think as, as a business community, people focus on tactical response over holistic solutions that have a long-term outcome. So the reason I said purpose is the most important thing is because that charts your long-term future, which then enables you to create a strategy, which then enables you to do, 
create objectives and then move to what your actual tactical response and outcomes will be. Um, um, I think the change between starting a very good company in 2011 and where we are now is there are lots of smaller businesses that were purpose-led from their inception and their founders understand the difference they want to make in the world beyond actually starting a company for um, commercial gain. And so it's a, I have more conversations with companies like Ocean Bottle or Flawsom, another drinks um, uh, brand, where they, they fundamentally want to do good. But that's the first thing they want to do. And the fact that they produce a product is secondary to the good that they want to do. That's heartening. Of course. And I wanted to get your views as well on what makes a good purpose-led organisation. And you've mentioned, obviously, changing it on paper um, legally. And you've mentioned as well following that up and having a good strategy. But is there, are there some other ingredients? Um, well, it's people and planet. So uh, have the strategy, but make sure you are fundamentally reducing your emissions. Make sure you're using less materials. Make sure that there is you know, no waste, zero waste within your, your supply chain. And then from a people aspect, think about the impact you're having on the communities that you serve. Think about the impact you're having on the talent within your, your business and think about the way that you can inspire and motivate and educate anyone that buys your products or, or service to understand their own role in this journey as we transition whether it's related to climate or racial justice or social justice businesses now have a voice and can enable people to think differently buy differently um, and and those those small actions is, is what will get us to a better future I think the panel that you were on closed off and the closing point I think came from Una Kent at Boots and it was don't go to the board and tell them what it'll cost tell them what it'll create in terms of value and I think that chimes with what you've said that all of that are locuses to act on but also areas where you can reap great benefit absolutely and I think that that value word is so key um, all, everything has everything has a value waste has a waste has a value but equally goodwill and common sense and doing the right thing has a value and the more that we talk about that at all at all levels of, of, of our businesses I think the more we enable people to have a sense of agency and ownership of the journey that we're going on well Natalie I haven't had a coffee yet but I do actually now after talking to you feel super energized for the day so thank you so much for your time and I'm going to hand the podcast baton over to our next speaker Natalie thank you so much thank you it's been wonderful being here Yes, so after a great morning of events here at the forum, we are now just about to go into lunch. But before we can tuck into our meat-free meals, I've managed to grab some time with David Saddington, um, the head of the International Nature Campaign for COP26. And David, it's great to be back with you. I think we last spoke actually at COP26, maybe week one. I feel like Luke was interviewing you. So I guess it's only natural to welcome you back um, and to ask for some of your reflections on COP26 from a nature um, perspective. So both in terms of some of the official outcomes we saw, like the Glasgow Pact and the Forest Treaty, um, but also from some of those side events and those non-state actors that will have been there. Thanks, Sarah. Yeah, pleasure to be back. Uh, it feels, yeah, Glasgow feels a long way away already, I think. Um, but yeah, looking back, um, really pleased at how much we were able to spotlight nature, to be honest. I mean, uh, you know, I've been around for a number of years and follow sort of many cops, and it was fantastic to see the profile which nature, forest, biodiversity got at a climate cop. And of course, we had that uh, the World Leaders Summit on Forest and Land 
land use to kick off the two weeks. Uh, we had the Prime Minister there standing up with uh, many, many leaders around the world uh, to unveil the Glasgow uh, Forest and Land Use Pact. We had 141 signatories to that, uh, committing to halt and reverse deforestation by the end of a decade. And the signatories cover over 90% of world forests. So we we're fantastically, you know, pleased uh, with the momentum that created um, and of course it's not only a political pledge but we had over 16 billion pounds worth of finance committed to forests uh, from the public sector from philanthropy from the private sector and we had so many uh, corporate commitments as well we had ceos from over 30 financial institutions with over 8.7 trillion assets in their portfolios commit to end deforestation. Uh, we had some of the biggest trading companies sign up to tackle deforestation in their supply chains. We had governments committing to make this, the trade in sustainable commodities um, you know, far greener over the coming years. So it was a fantastic, um, yeah, fantastic event. And of course, now the challenge is putting all of that into practice. So yes, still keeping very, very busy um, throughout the COP presidency. Yeah. And you mentioned you've been to previous COPs, but I'm a COP novice. But having read about previous COPs, something that stood out as well in the terms and the treaties and the pact was how high people were put alongside forests. It's not just we're going in to conserve the forests and restore the forests. We have to do this in partnership with the people that live there, that have the decades-old knowledge, that have the centuries-old knowledge that depend on that for their livelihood so is that something that you saw in terms of your reflections as well maybe a more people-centric focused approach to nature absolutely and i you know there's no way of doing that to be honest because particularly when we talk around tropical forests you know the, the countries which these cover you know we're talking the countries of the congo basin the amazon indonesia malaysia we absolutely need to be working in partnership with those countries because I think previous efforts to tackle commodity driven deforestation has, has has honestly taken that quite you know imperialistic sort of view it's around sort of you know we don't want X anymore you know we don't want palm oil we don't want this and actually without an understanding around the development the people at the heart of this you, you know take commodity trade for example you know we talk around palm oil soy cocoa beef there are you know over 1.5 billion people um, who rely on these commodities for their income and we need to have that real collaboration with them um, to have climate resilient trade systems so absolutely that's why we were sort of really sort of advocating for that producer consumer partnership uh, one of the flagship initiatives we launched at, at the COP was uh, fact dialogue the forest agriculture and commodity trade dialogue and actually this was really historic in bringing together the largest importers countries like the uk the us the eu together with the exporters like indonesia malaysia brazil and indonesia actually sort of uh, co-chair that dialogue with us and already that actually has formed a historic collaboration to bring these you know quite difficult politics together um, but we can't actually advance this agenda until we are able to engage in those sort of difficult but necessary conversations so I think yeah absolutely we need to put people right at the heart of this and of course you know IPLC uh, representatives indigenous people and local communities were again quite rightly at the heart of that conversation you know they are the forest guardians they have so much traditional knowledge um, and actually we need to work you know in 
ever closer with them and that's why um, you know one of the finance commitments pledged um, 1.1 billion pounds of finance specifically for um, those forest guardians. Well thank you for that summary and as you mentioned it is now time to enter the implementation um, era. The agenda's been set and we're going forward so I think something I'd, I'd like to ask is obviously your head of international nature campaign for Coptics, but you mentioned that Glasgow already feels like a long time ago. Um, so, what happens to your role now this year? Is it the case that this is your role until the UK hands over presidency? And if so, what 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 is your ambition for your work this year? Yes, uh, absolutely. Um, so the COP presidency actually starting in Glasgow is when you host the COP. That's when you sort of inherit the presidency. So this year we are, you know entirely committed to making sure that the pledges from Glasgow are implemented and I think critically when it comes to nature that we turn that historic moment into momentum um, because this can't just be something which was you know, spotlighted for a fortnight and then forgotten. We know how important it is to really mainstream nature in the climate change conversation and biodiversity. So we really need to see this sort of this critical year, a year which has you know a biodiversity COP held by China, the desertification COP in Cote d'Ivoire. We're celebrating the 50th year um, anniversary of Stockholm. Um, there um, so it is a critical year for nature and we need to make sure that those pledges from Glasgow are implemented so my job this year will be sort of to keep that momentum going um, throughout those key moments and into an Egyptian presidency in Sharm el-Sheikh in the autumn. Okay well obviously best of luck with that and I don't think we can get anywhere with implementation without engagement if that's anything that I could take away from the talks that we've had um, so far, um, engagement and communications always comes up, so I'm really glad to have got time with you because people might be listening and recognise your voice um, from your work with channels like TED Talks, WWF, um, NTV, Twitter, YouTube. So I wanted to get your thoughts about what you've learned about effective climate communication and engagement. Um, in recent years and we could come at this from many angles but I, I'd like to focus on the general public um, we've had a lot of questions coming in at the moment saying that sustainability professionals are a bit concerned that at the moment policymakers and businesses are being tackled with a fresh wave of disinformation um, around the energy price crisis and around what's happening in Russia and Ukraine um, at the moment and also in fear it's been said that people might want to go back to old ways and not look for new solutions and this is as you mentioned the moment not to do that um, so yeah what are your learnings on effective climate comms if I could pick your brain please David yeah it's, I mean it's, it's always an important point around how do we communicate this but I think you know rightly so you've, you've identified it it feels more important than ever I want to say sort of say to say two things and actually they sort of maybe sound quite disconnected but I think mean, I think the first one is around the importance of facts and actually verified communications um, of course you know as we've seen throughout the pandemic you know uh, there has been sort of that trust in science and particular sort of you know scientific communications I think you know when we as sustainability professionals you know talk around these issues we have an absolute sort of you know uh, you know we need to prioritize getting our facts 
right making sure that we sort of we know we have them to hand that we sort of we, we know sort of you know does it just change all the time you know we are seeing sort of you know you know thinking around you know the energy um, issues we're facing at the moment you know but you know daily sort of changes to to this so I think you know we need sort of to practice that ourselves but secondly we need to be acutely aware that sort of facts only get you so far actually you need to be sort of um, really aware of the cultural conversation you need to be able to sort of tell that story and i think particularly when we talk around net zero we need to actually show people that this is a better world we are sort of heading into i think you know certainly from the pandemic so many people have seen um, you know firsthand how cities can be car free how pollution can be much lower um, you know on the panel down was talking about um, how people have that new appreciation for local nature for example and actually that, that that goes beyond sort of you know pure fact it is around sort of people's feelings and emotions um, and I think we need to be acutely aware of that as sustainability professionals that we not only have the obligation to communicate the, the facts um, but also that we need to bring people on that journey because we know the world you know that net zero world is is possible and we know sort of you know the co-benefits of reaching that in all aspects of our lives but we have that obligation i think to really sort of tell that story and bring people on that and and to do that we need that sort of uh, that really sort of tuned in cultural um, and societal understanding of what that transition entails of course, and my Twitter feed is full of like the energy experts saying, setting out the points one by one. But unless you tell people, like you know, this isn't going to be another upfront cost. This is an opportunity um, to save money in the long term, to get a future for your children, to interact with your community and safeguard your community. I've summarised what you said as uh, facts, feelings, and, and benefits. <laughs> I mean, that feels good. I may be the occasional sort of yeah, next slide, please, as well um, as we get. <laughs> Of course. Well, David, I'm aware that people are filtering into this room with some very delicious looking lunch and I'd hate for you to miss out on a plate. So I will let you go and grab one. But thank you so much for all of your insight on the podcast today. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Sarah. Cheers. Um, and thanks for coming along. I think I'm now handing over the so-called podcast baton to Matt. Okay, so it's afternoon on day one of the Sustainability Leaders Forum. Um, it's absolutely flown by, uh, in, in all honesty. I um, was ready for a, a really kind of marathon day of, of content, and it has been that, but it has absolutely flown. Still feeling energised, which for, uh, you know, my first, like, you know, full conference probably since lockdowns were eased, I thought I'd be a, like just on my on my last legs right now but I'm, I think the level of the conversations has kept me energised and I'm hoping the next one will do just that. So I'm joined by Julia Giannini um, who is Head of Environment and Climate Action at Booper which is a great job title. I've heard lots of Heads of Environment but Head of Climate Action is a real kind of um, well, it's actually an active job title isn't it? Um, Julia thanks so much for joining me today. Uh, first up how have you found the discussions at the forum so far? It's great to join you Matt. Um, to be honest, what you just said about action is really relevant to my answer to what you just asked me because I can. One of the things that I've really picked up on in uh, the forum so far is that we are itching for the action now. Everyone in the room is talking about actually what are the solutions, what are the drivers that are going to get us there, what are the blockers that we're facing to get us over those hurdles to allow us to act. And it's moved on from defining what net zero is or defining kind of the reason why a business should be doing this to actually 
what do we do now and how do we make this happen? So it's been really inspiring so far. Yeah, it felt like kind of uh, build up to COP26 last year was all about target setting, everyone getting the house in order. Now it's this, this it is the, the badge decade of delivery, isn't it? But I don't think we've actually had a chance to catch up since um, you moved into your role at Booper. Um, you were previously at ITV and we've spoken many times about um, some really kind of industry leading targets there as well. So what, what you know, motivated you to make that change and uh, what some of the things that you've been focusing on during your first year now at Booper? So um, what motivated me for moving on from ITV, it was fantastic being there and setting up the first climate action strategy and net zero by 2030 target. Um, the thing about Bupa is there's something incredibly motivating about joining an industry that is so fundamental to the systems that underpin our society. Moving into healthcare and how do you decarbonize healthcare is a seriously wicked problem. I mean, the approach that we need to take needs to make sure that we don't jeopardise any form of quality of healthcare, but we absolutely need to decarbonise this. I mean, healthcare, if healthcare were a country, it would be the fifth biggest emitter in the world. It's, it contributes to 4.4% of all emissions. So there's a lot to do. And since joining Bupa, um, myself and the brilliant team there have set our net zero by 2040 target uh, across all three emission scopes. It's Those are underpinned by 1.5 degree aligned science-based targets. So we've got loads of work to do. We've set the target. In some ways, that's the easiest part. It's now about transforming the business to achieve that change. And with a, with a sector that has such a, a big contribution like that, that, that net zero 2040 target is, is obviously huge. And in terms of that transition for the business, what, what does that look like? You know, what are the major sources of emissions that you're going to be focusing on? And you know, if that transition is successful, what does is, what is the what does a future booper look like if it is a net zero booper? That's a really good question, Matt. I wish I had all the answers to hand, but I'll give you some, some reflections so far. So obtaining our baseline um, carbon footprint has shown us what many businesses are facing into, the fact that 98% of our emissions are sitting in our scope three. Um, the biggest areas of that are around claims, so the carbon footprint of a claim. So that includes the treatment that someone receives, it's the travel to that treatment, any technologies that are being used. It also, uh, another key one in our scope three is products and services. So our biggest focus needs to be on how, how do we work with our healthcare provision providers to for them to decarbonize? What is it that we can do to drive the industry um, and enable them to bring down their own carbon footprint, likewise with our suppliers? That said, our scope one and two is a is a really important part of our footprint. We um, occupy over 2,000 buildings globally. Um, we are looking to switch to renewable energy wherever possible. We've actually just signed a really large PPA in Australia where it's actually really difficult to secure renewable energy right now, um, which is going to bring down the emissions profile significantly in Australia. Um, it's more actions like that that are needed. In addition to that, though, we're looking at innovation because we don't have all the answers right now to what needs to happen to bring down our scope three. We've set an absolute reduction in our scope three target. Um, it's as ambitious as you could go. We have set up an innovation program at Bupa called Eco Disruptive that essentially gives our people the permission to go out there and find startups that have the solutions to the biggest ecological, well, the biggest sustainability challenges that we have in the organization. So we're gonna be repeating that program this year we're going to be looking at how do we advance that so that it really delivers against our scope three challenges um, because there are going to be some amazing solutions out there that we need to tap into. And because of the rather unique um, business model of Bupa, we don't have shareholders so we can reinvest our profits back into the organisation. It also allows us to invest those profits into innovations and startups 
and funding and research that is needed to bring out those evidence-based solutions to what it is we're trying to do. Very much harks back to that action point that you you know you turned on in innovation and knocking that was going to be absolutely key. And um, it's a really interesting time to be talking to you. There's a real kind of just strange backdrop going on with the kind of human suffering that's happening now in Ukraine because of the invasion right now. And the IPCC report um, that came out, you know, I think uh, it's been referenced in pretty much every conversation at the forum today so far. It is a kind of real guideline for for conversations around this and um, the UN General Secretary described it as an atlas of human suffering you know 3.3 billion people going to be highly vulnerable to the climate impacts and that's a range of being displaced uh, you know feeling the physical effects but also the mental effects the anxiety that this brings on and um, so how does a company in a healthcare space really kind of educate and communicate the the intricacies, interconnections between the climate crisis that we're seeing, but also the kind of deterioration of, of human health that is being linked to it, both, you know, that mental aspect and that physical aspect. Um, you know, how, how is it that you're going to try and, you know, educate on that? That is exactly the opportunity that we have at Bupa, and we're developing our new sustainability strategy at the moment, which is focused on that nexus of the fact that you can't have healthy people if you don't have a healthy planet. So our strategy, watch this space, will be launched in the next few months. Um, Essentially, we know that we need to be advocating for health to be part of the climate agenda. We saw um, that there was the WHO pavilion at COP26 um, just last year. Um, we, We ideally would like to see a health day at COP. Um, at the the next COP. We're in collaborations with some of our peers in this industry, the Sustainable Healthcare Coalition, we're members of, um, we're part part of Healthcare Without Harm, um, through which we joined Race to Zero. Um, We're also establishing a new collaboration with Forum of the Future and um, our friends in GSK, Walgreens Boots Alliance and others, um, because we, it's it's fundamental for all of these, these peers of ours that we need to have a healthy planet in order to enable people to be healthier and the outcomes that we're looking for within our sustainability strategy are not just going to be around improving ecosystem degradation or um, protecting um, you know or, or moving our industry to be lower impact we also want to search for those health outcomes as a result of what we're doing through our sustainability strategy I think I think people have really clocked on to the, the the benefits that a healthy planet, as you put it, brings. Certainly, the first lockdown when you were only allowed outside once a day really harked home to me that how much nature is important as well, and the climate crisis builds into that. So there's a, a lot of work to be done, um, and hopefully the the forum helps kind of really spark some ideas about that as well. But Julia, it's been a, a pleasure talking to you. I won't keep you any long because I know there's still one more session that you'll probably want to go and listen to. But it's been great to speak to you. Thank you. It's great to speak to you too, Matt. Thank you. Well, that's a wrap on today's interview relay. All three of us from the editorial team, as I've said, are now reconvened following this jam-packed day. Um, You're hearing the podcast, but between us, we've also been recording video interviews, writing up news pieces, updating a live blog, chairing some sessions, um, and of course, catching up with our wonderful sustainability and energy professionals within our networks. Um, we've already got some reflections on favourite events, but I understand that Matt and Luke, for you, the working day isn't quite over just yet and that you're heading off somewhere else in London for, for another event. Correct, yeah. I found myself just staring vacantly there while I had a brief moment of just of reflection after a huge day. It's been an exhausting day with um, 
we've been doing all sorts, haven't we? I think between us, I've seen us carrying chairs, moving signs about, moving people about, trying to find speakers at the very last minute. So it's been quite quite frantic, but um, it's come together really, really well. Um, yes, we do have a, a, an event that both Matt and I are going along to. Uh, we're going to be dressed incredibly similarly. Uh, same same colour jacket, same colour shirt, same colour jeans. It's not um, about the jacket, Luke. It's about the content. So is. what is the event? <laughs> <laughs> so the content is uh, it's a uh, roundtable and dinner discussion focused on, it's part of actually our, our Better Business Roundtable series, being chaired by Mike Barry, many of our listeners will know, former uh, Plan A director at MS. Uh, and it's going to be a discussion about business model transformation, so really connecting with a lot of the topics we've discussed already today, we'll be discussing tomorrow, what does, what does business tra- transformation in terms of the business models um, and system design within organisations actually look like, and uh, we're bringing together some really interesting organisations around the table for uh, another Chatham House Rules <laughs> discussion, it's a bit of a cop out this one for me, um, but it will hopefully deliver some really interesting results as to how far away are we from a, you know, a truly sustainable future some big questions so I better let you two get going and ponder some answer to those in your taxis over there mm-hmm. um, and electric of course um, and the day isn't quite over for me yet I'll swiftly be leaving the business design centre and holding myself up in my hotel room to edit this episode so I think for the sake of all of us we best wrap up for today but fear not because we will be bringing you another special episode live from day two so please do tune in for that And if you're listening to this on the evening of March the 8th, there is still time to grab an in-person or a virtual ticket for tomorrow. That's day two, March the 9th. You can find our full agenda for the day and get your pass at event.ed.net forward slash forum. That's event.ed.net forward slash forum. Until then, it's goodbye from all three of us here on the ED editorial team. So it's goodbye from Luke. Goodbye. A goodbye from Matt. Goodbye. And a goodbye from me, Sarah. Goodbye. Goodbye.